We're going to continue in worship. I'll ask you to be seated, but turn your attention to the baptism pool. Jessica and I, over the last year, have watched Christian come to understand and appreciate the finished work of Jesus Christ. We as a group of believers can rejoice as we now welcome Christian to the fellowship table. And later this morning, we rejoice as a group of parents come to dedicate their children to the Lord. And we as a church will commit to praying and walking alongside them in the hope and with the faith that they too, at some point in time, will come to participate in the covenant of baptism. Christian, do you have any hope of salvation without Jesus? No. Do you trust in Jesus yes. and his finished work for the forgiveness of your sins and salvation? Yes. Okay, here we go. Then Christian, my son and brother, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. Y'all stand and let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we get to have as a part of our worship this morning a baptism. I pray for the Edwards family. I pray for Scott and Jessica as they continue to lead uh, Christian and all the other kiddos. I pray for Christian and his faith. I'm thankful for the appeal that was made this morning. And I pray that, uh, that we would all rejoice in that and that as we worship you, that it would be wholehearted worship. Uh, I pray that our hearts would be stirred by these beautiful truths being put on display and your glory uh, being revealed in them. We love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Y'all ready to eat? We are going to eat this morning. It is a uh, manwich. I told Scott this morning. Um, no light fare today. You'll need your Bible. You do every week, but um, you will especially need to handle it this morning. Let me begin with prayer, and we'll climb into our message. <coughs> God, we are thankful so much for, first of all, for the sweet privilege of being witnesses to Christians' appeal to you for a good conscience through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Or we are thankful for the picture of Noah and his family braving the watery ordeal of the flood. Thankful that he stepped out on dry ground because of your deliverance and your goodness. Thankful that your people crossed the Red Sea on dry ground because of your goodness and your deliverance. Thankful that your people crossed the Jordan on dry ground. And that now Christian sits, having passed through a watery ordeal, having made an appeal to you, not on any work that he's ever done or could ever do, but on the finished work of Christ. We celebrate that this morning. We enjoy it. Thank you so much for... Uh, what you're doing in that family, what you're doing in Christian's life. It's a sweet privilege to participate in it. Lord, this morning, I want to lift up, first of all, before we engage this message, I want to lift up orphans. I know that you know every orphan. You know every um, reason someone could be orphaned. You know every pain and ache and every hair on their head. Lord, I also know that you know the church. And I pray that you can connect and mobilize the church to be the church and to care for orphans. 
pure and undefiled religion is what we ask for, Lord, and there's plenty of ways to mess up religion, but we pray for pure religion that cares for orphans and widows and visits them in their distress. Lord, I pray for a church that makes it a priority to care for orphans, whether it's foster care or adoption or contributing financially to those endeavors or respite care, whatever it might be that we as a team are engaged in this work as an act of worship. Lord, in these next few minutes, as far as this sermon goes, I am uh, overwhelmed for this congregation this morning, knowing what they're about to eat. I'm overwhelmed knowing what I'm about to preach. And Lord, I know it's bigger than me and it's bigger than this body for us to even hear, for me to preach. Lord, I ask for the Holy Spirit to do a work in spite of us, through us, with us, to give us, a, give us an attentiveness that we don't have, to give me a clarity that I don't have. Lord, I pray that we can enjoy your glory this morning and that as we do, that we can be answered prayer. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn to John chapter 17. <clears throat> I'll read the chapter as a whole and then I'll give you a plan for the morning. A map kind of where we're going. This prayer was prayed on the eve before Christ's crucifixion. He's about to go to the cross hours later. The arrest is the next scene in the book of John. Speaking with the 11, they've left everything to follow him. The 12th has already departed to betray him. Christ is speaking with his followers, and at this point, he is speaking with his father. In some ways, we're on holy ground listening in on a conversation between God the Son and God the Father. It's really an awesome awesome reality that not only did he pray this first, but that he prayed it out loud second, and then he prayed it in earshot of John who could record it third. Crazy privilege that we have to enjoy it this morning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they've kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they've believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am, but not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. That's an ocean trying to expose an ocean is no small endeavor. We have a plan for doing this, and I don't know how long it's going to take, but we have a plan to, to sort of unpack and expose this chapter via the petitions. There's five petitions that are made, requests that are made in this chapter, in this prayer that the Son asks of the Father. All they are is simply an escort. It's not the way to understand the chapter. It's a way. The petition that we are neck deep in right now and that we're finishing this morning is the petition for glory. I shared a few weeks ago, defining glory is sort of like defining a color. The only way to do it is sort of talk about things that are that color. Maybe you can give some details on the spectrum range or something. Somebody emailed me with a, with a specific range on the color spectrum that it was. It still doesn't define it. It's a hard thing to expose glory. So what we've done these last few weeks is we've just gotten in the ocean and tried to grab these things that he talks about in this chapter having to do with glory. We called them facets of glory, and there are five of them. And today we will finish with the last facet. The first facet of glory had to do with the Son being glorified in giving eternal life to some. The second facet was of the Son being glorified in doing His Father's work. The third facet had to do with the Son desiring His pre-creation glory in the Father's presence. He's ready for that to be restored. And the fourth facet, facet had to do with the Son wanting His followers to be with Him forever in order to enjoy His glory forever. Today we'll deal with the last glory facet having to do with glory in us. Having to do with him being glorified in us. Specifically, he says in verse 10, he says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, 
and I am glorified in them. One of the first questions that I wrote in my Bible or wrote in my notes as I was engaging this chapter and studying it was how is he glorified in us? We're talking about something that we don't have. We don't have glory inherently. He's talking about doing something in us that glorifies himself in us. So we're going to go on a journey this morning, and I want to give you kind of a bird's eye view of the journey. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'll I'll share with you the plan. John chapter 1, the first 18 verses is sort of like a legend to a map. Most of you know, I guess, especially the men, being the keen map users that we are, not. But for those of you who might actually pick up a map, you know that the legend is the way that you understand and interpret the map. It helps you understand cardinal direction, distances, and things like that. You need the legend. And we need the legend to the book of John to understand the book of John. And the first 18 verses is the legend. So it, in some ways, helps us interpret what we're seeing and hearing over there in John chapter 17. I want you to listen to these four verses in John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. I guess it would be five inclusive of verse 18. Listen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know that that's speaking of Christ. He tabernacled among us is specifically the Word. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. Remember, there was never a time when He was not. And from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Watch. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He has explained him. Now, the reason I read these verses, the reason we go back to the legend, is because in order to understand John chapter 17, we have to understand the, the, the plan for the book. And this is sort of like the book condensed. And what happens in these four verses is there are so many references to the Exodus that it's sort of like John is pointing the finger back at the Exodus for saying, go back and look at the Exodus. Not just the book of Exodus, but the event of the Exodus. Go back and look at the details because they show up right here. And it's in observing those details that you will understand what's being said here and you will understand these glory requests and glory statements in John chapter 17. Three of those things that are mentioned in these five verses in John chapter 1 that I want to bring out is first of all the tabernacle, that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Christ tabernacled among man. The tabernacle in the Exodus was the great meeting place between God and man. And Christ becomes the new and final great meeting place, i.e. person, between God and man. It's pointing back to the tabernacle in the Exodus. Secondly is the law. It says specifically in this passage, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Christ is set in contrast to Moses as satisfying and accomplishing more. 
law is contrasted with grace and truth. So we can't even understand grace and truth except for engaging law. See the finger pointing back? John's saying, go back and get it. Go back and look at it. The third thing is his reference here. No one has ever seen God, but Christ has made him known. This is pointing back to a passage we're going to look at later on this morning in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, where Moses is saying, God, just show me your glory. And God says, you can't handle my glory, but I'll pass by and I'll let you see a glimpse of my backside and I'll share with you my name. That's where we'll go this morning. He's pointing us back to the Exodus. So we're going to follow his direction and go back to the Exodus. Turn to Exodus chapter 14. As you're turning there, I want to give you kind of, I want to remind you of what we're doing here. I could potentially be lost in what we're doing. And I'm the preacher, so I want to make sure that we're all tracking with what we're about this morning. We're dealing with the last facet of glory where Christ says, all mine are yours, yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. So he's speaking about being glorified in us. So we're following this arrow that points us back to the Exodus. And what we're going to find there is that the Exodus deals with these things. Presence. It deals with God's glory in presence, in provision. It deals with His glory in His character, in His greatness, in His power, and in revelation. And all of those things show up in the cross. They show up in the very event that's going to happen the next morning on into the day. Or Christ is praying on the eve of his crucifixion. All of those things will show up and unfold in the hours after this prayer. We've got to get where this thing all fits together. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do the work to connect them. These exodus images. I'm going to call them sort of shadows to this gospel substance. And we're going to answer the question that I asked at the very beginning, how is he glorified in us? We're going to consider how this prayer is fulfilled simply in our considering these connections. We're going to create an itch, and we're going to scratch it at the end of the sermon. So now let's develop the itch. Exodus glimpses. Stay over there in Exodus 14, but I'm going to develop something for you for a minute. This is the first of three glimpses of Exodus glory. Here's the first. Starting in, uh, actually, I'm going to be in verse, or in chapter 3, verse 18. I'm going to give you a little reference. Don't turn there. I just wanted to listen. This is the burning bush event. God is calling Moses to lead his people out of Israel. I mean, out of Egypt, the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses is, this is the account where he says, well, who shall I say sent me? He says, I am that I am sent you. That occasion where he reveals his name. In verse 18, he says, these Israelites, they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, that's the Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, God says, unless compelled by a mighty 
hand. So I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he'll let you go. This is the motive of the Exodus. God is going to stretch out his mighty hand and do some mighty works with Pharaoh, all the while hardening his heart to where he won't let him go until it's not quite dark enough. And when it's dark enough, he'll lead his people out of Egypt. There's a purpose and a plan to this, and I'm about to show you what it is. But let me first show you just briefly what those mighty acts of judgment were. First of all was the water being turned to blood, specifically the Nile. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff, struck the water in the Nile. All the water in the Nile turned to blood. We can imagine the tragic event that would be if we had a, a major waterway. I mean, the Nile was the center of all life in Egypt. It's turned not just red, but turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank, it says. Stank. It's the southern, southern version. I thought it would say stunk. It says stank. So that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. The first mighty act of judgment. The second one is frogs. Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The third is gnats. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast, and all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The fourth was flies. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. The fifth plague was the livestock dying. The hand of the Lord, he says, will fall a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field. The horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks, they'll all die. But not one of the livestock of the people of Israel will die. The next plague was boils. They took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoke, spoken to Moses, just as he said. The seventh mighty act was hail. It says, thus, thus the Lord said, the God of Hebrews said, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there's none like me in all the earth. There's a purpose to all this. So that you will know that I am the Lord. For by now I could have put you out of my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourselves against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause, cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And sure enough, hail fell. The eighth plague was locusts. The ninth plague was a darkness that could be felt Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. 
And the last plague, which was probably the most gruesome, was where the firstborn in every household died in their sleep. If dad was the firstborn in his household, he didn't wake up. The firstborn son didn't wake up. The firstborn puppy dog in the litter didn't wake up. The last plague must have been the most gruesome. It says there were cries heard in every Egyptian household that night. And then finally, Pharaoh says, go. And even yet, the Lord, in chapter 14 of verse 4, he hardened Pharaoh's heart yet again. Once, once the Israelites are on their way, he says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them and watch. I will get glory over Pharaoh. That's what this whole thing is about, about glory through mighty acts of judgment. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Down in verse 17, he says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. That's into the Red Sea. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. There was motive and plan to all of this. And this glory that God is demonstrating over Pharaoh and the Egyptians looks like fame and deserved adoration, maybe even fear at a mighty demonstration of power. Now, what I want you to see is that God certainly demonstrated His power in these mighty acts of judgment. A couple years ago, now, we climbed into these plagues and we let them hit us, the big, big hail chunks. We let the frogs sit in our beds and imagine what that would be like. We heard the shrieks of Egypt as they found their firstborn dead in bed. We let all those images hit us and we realized that mighty act of judgment that that was. God certainly demonstrated a mighty act of power in hardening Pharaoh's heart to continue to resist him. Make no mistake, in the Exodus, God is showing off. God is showing off. He is showing the Israelites and the Egyptians who is really God, who is the living God, so that they may know that He is the Lord. Now, what does this have to do with Christ? That, like I said, is shadow to the substance that is Christ. If you lived in that time, it wouldn't have felt like shadow. We would have quaked with the rest of them, but in contrast to what Christ has done, it's shadow. Now, the substance that is Christ. Christ's glory, too, is about fame and deserved adoration as a demonstration of power. The cross is a demonstration of power. Let me share some passages with you from the book of John. I'll give you the references if you want to look them up later. John chapter 10, verse 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Speaking of the cross, he says, But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. He exercised, it looked like a real passive thing, being arrested and beaten 
and spit upon and a, a, a crown of thorns stuck into his head and nailed to a wooden cross. It looked like a real passive event, but what you need to realize is he is exercising divine authority in the cross. Another passage, John chapter 12, verse 30. Actually, I'm going to start in verse verse 27. This is after the triumphal entry. This is the last week when he's in Jerusalem. He says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's speaking of the cross. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. He says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven says, I've glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Watch. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now in this thing that looked like a shame hour was actually a glory hour as a demonstration of power. John chapter 14, verse 30. It says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, but watch, he has no claim on me. If we look at the cross with earthly eyes, man, it looks like a beating. It looks like a loss. But if we look at it with biblical eyes, we realize that in the cross, he exercised divine authority. We realize in the cross, he defeated and sealed Satan's fate. We realize in the cross that Satan has no claim over Christ. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. I want to show you the power of the cross. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 Paul's writing to the church of the Colossians. He says, And you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your, fle- of, of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's a powerful event enough. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside. How did he do it? He nailed it to a cross. That's a powerful event in and of itself. But that's not all that happened in the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He made them a bunch of, th- a bunch of chumps. He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And he is speaking of specifically the cross. Through the cross, Satan and his minions were made spectacles. They were disarmed. They were disrobed. They were stripped. Ephesians speaks about what happens in the cross, and it says, when Christ ascended on high, he led host, a host or a train of captives. This imagery was used of those who had been defeated in battle. If they didn't die in battle, they were paraded behind the king or general returning from battle. They're paraded behind the victor in chains, often stripped, disrobed, always disarmed. This is what happened in the cross. 
They're presented as weak, defeated, and beaten losers. That's what happened in the cross. It's the ultimate walk of shame with a group of losers paraded for all to see and all to enjoy. Given what we know about the kingdom of God is there's irony here in that the parade would look something like this. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns fighting against the chains with thousands and thousands of his warriors and principalities behind him, all of them chained and furious lapping at the chains, driven by pride, angered by defeat, and then out of front is one from whom men hide their faces. Out in front is a God-man considered despised and forsaken, smitten of God and afflicted. Out in front is a lamb leading a host of disarmed captives. A lamb with pierced hands and feet and side, one gentle and humble of heart, a foot-washing servant. A contrary victor riding a donkey's colt. That's what the parade would look like. For the cross was the most powerful event in history. It was the most powerful demonstration of God's power in history. Romans chapter 1 says of this, a passage that's often referred to in evangelistic sort of messages, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it says, for the Jew first and also for the Greek A big portion of our New Testament is dealing with the reality that the cross is so powerful that it can unite Jew and Gentile. Are you kidding me? There couldn't have been two more unlikely companions and that they are united and built into a people through the cross. That ought to give good news to y'all in marriages, knowing that if God can unite Jew and Gentile, he can unite a man from Mars and a woman from Venus. (laughs) That's how powerful our cross is. It built a people and has built a people and will continue to build a people until Christ returns from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every age, from every corner of the globe. That's how powerful that event was on Golgotha 2,000 years ago. It's ironic that the most powerful moment in history looks like the most helpless and pitiful defeat. But we see it through the lens of the Bible. We realize that our... Gospel is a contrary gospel with a contrary victor. Christ got what he asked for in John chapter 17, and he was glorified in the cross as God was glorified in demonstrating his power in the Exodus. He demonstrates his power in the cross and is deserving of adoration. Second glimpse is in Exodus chapter 24. Turn there. If you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you know that it's in the book of Exodus that the law was given to the people of God. It sort of centers around, or at least a portion of the book centers around Mount Sinai. Chapter 24, verse 15, says, Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. We've got to know what happens on this mountain. The law, God's law, is given to man. 
Moses goes up on the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. There it is, glory. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the Lord was like, watch, a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. God's glory rests on Sinai and it's described as a devouring fire. I don't think it's any small coincidence at all of what's happening there on that mountaintop where the law is being given to man, where God's showing up and it's described the image of a devouring fire. We're not talking about a campfire that everybody sits around and warms their hands, but a devouring fire is a description. That's no coincidence at all. A few years ago, Christy and I read a, a book by a guy named Norman McLean. Norman McLean wrote a book it's called The River Run Th- Runs Through It. Many of you heard of that book because of the movie. But he also wrote a book that's called Young Men in Fire. The story about 15 smoke jumpers that jumped into a fire, not into the fire, but into the area around a fire just outside Helena, Montana in 1949. It's an amazing amazing story. Of the 15, 13 of them died in what's called a blow-up, a devouring fire. I want to read an excerpt to you from this book because the imagery is just too perfect for us to pass up. Wag Dodge is the guy that led the crew. Wag old-fashioned name. Wag Dodge testifies that this was the first time he had tried to communicate with his men since rejoining them at the head of the gulch. This gulch is called Man Gulch, man with two ends. And he's reported as saying for the second time something about getting out of this death trap. Smoke jumpers are guys that jump in and put out fires. They're like firemen except for the mountains, and they jump in with a parachute. Fifteen of these guys jump in. When asked by the board of review, they're trying to figure out what happened here. Did somebody make some bad decisions that 13 of the 15 would die? When asked by the board of review if he had explained to the men the danger they were in as they're looking at this fire, he looked at the board in amazement as if the board had never been outside the city limits and wouldn't know sawdust if they saw it in a pile. It was getting late for talk anyway. What could anybody hear? It roared from behind, below, and across, and the crew inside it was shut out from all but a small piece of the outside world. This fire was no ordinary forest fire. It was at first when they jumped in, but what happened is when the wind catches a fire just right in the mountains, you get what's called the chimney effect or blow up, and it's like, like an explosion. Some of you have a chimney or you've been around a campfire where you see the wind hit it just right, and it just goes up and ignites That's what happened in the mountains there at Man Gulch. This fire went from an ordinary forest fire to a 300-foot wall of fire advancing now at these men at a rate of about 100 meters per minute. That doesn't sound like much if you're a sprinter on flat ground with spiked shoes. But if you're in the mountains running straight uphill in hiking boots carrying fire equipment, that, that sounds like death. 
They come to the station of the cross. That's the way Norman McLean presents it, like the stations of the cross. They come to the station of the cross where something you want to see and can't shuts out the sight of everything that otherwise could be seen. Rumsey says again and again what that something was that he couldn't see. The top of the ridge. The top of the ridge. If we can make the top of the ridge, we can escape the devouring fire. That's what these guys are thinking. Because at the top of the ridge, the blow-up dies out. I had noticed that the fire will wear out when it reaches the top of a ridge. I started putting on steam, thinking if I could get to the top of the ridge, I would be safe. I kept thinking the ridge, if we can make it on the ridge, I will be safe. I forgot to mention I could not definitely see the ridge from where we were. We kept running up since it had to be there somewhere. Might be a mile and a half or 100 feet. I had no idea. The survivors say they weren't panicked, and some, something like that is probably true. Smoke jumpers are selected for being tough, but Dodge's men were very young. And as he testified, none of them had been on a blow-up before. And they were getting exhausted and confused. The world roared at them. There was no safe place inside and there was almost no outside. But now they were short of breath from the exertion of their climbing and their lungs were being seared by the heat. A world was coming where no organ of the body had consciousness but the lungs. Dodge's order was to throw away just their packs and heavy tools, but to his surprise, some of them had already thrown away all their equipment. On the other hand, some of them wouldn't abandon their heavy tools, even after Dodge's order. Dietert, one of the most intelligent of the crew, continued, continued carrying both his tools until Rumsey caught up with him, took his shovel, and leaned it against a pine tree. Just a little farther on, Rumsey and Saley passed the recreation guard. This was a guy already on the scene named Jim Harrison, who having been on the fire all afternoon was now exhausted. He was sitting with his heavy pack on and was making no effort to take it off. And Rumsey and Saley wondered numbly why he didn't. But no one stopped to suggest he get on his feet or give, gave him a hand to help him up. It was too late to even pray for him. This dude sitting with his pack on about to die. Afterwards, his ranger wrote his mother and struggling for something to say that would comfort her, told her that her son always attended Mass when he could. It was way over 100 degrees, except, except for some scattered timber. The slope was mostly hot rock slides and grass dried to hay. It was becoming a world where thought that could be described as such was done largely by fixations. Thought consisted in repeating over and over something that had been said in a training course or at least by somebody older than you. Critical distances shortened. It had been a quarter of a mile from where Dodge had rejoined his crew to where he had the crew reverse direction. From there, they had gone only 500 yards at the most before he realized the fire was gaining on them so rapidly that the men should discard whatever was heavy. The next station of the cross was only 75 yards ahead. There they came to the edge of scattered timber with a grassy slope ahead. There they could see what is really not possible to see, the center of a devouring fire, the center of a blow-up. It's really not possible to see the center of a blow-up because the smoke only occasionally lifts. And when it does, all that can be seen are pieces, pieces of death flying around looking for you. Burning cones, branches circling on wings, a log in flight without a propeller. Below in the bottom of the gulch was a great roar without visible flames, but blown with winds on fire. 
Now for the first time, they could have seen to the head of the gulch if they'd been looking that way. And now for the first time, to their left, the top of the ridge was visible. Looking when the smoke parted to be not more than 200 yards away. 200 yards. Navon had already left the line and on his own was angling for the top. Having been at Bastogne, he thought he had come to know the deepest of secrets, how death can be avoided. But if he really knew at that moment how death could be avoided, he would have had to, he would have had to know the, the answers to two questions. First, how could fires be burning in all directions and be burning right at you? And second, how could those invisible and present only by a roar all be roaring at you. The reason I share that story in such detail is because it's an image worth considering when we consider that the law was given to man and the image is a devouring fire. When we consider what the law is to us, we realize that's an appropriate image. That image Where if you could possibly see into it, you see pieces of death flying around looking for you. If you could possibly see into it, you see burning cones, branches circling on wings, a log in flight without a propeller in a devouring fire. On this hillside, these guys are looking at the ridge and 13 of them died on their way to it. Two of them made the ridge. One other survived on the hill. I'll tell you how he survived in a minute. But I want you to understand why this connects to the law. It is no mistake that this picture of a devouring fire is associated with the giving of the law. Considering what he's giving us, a devouring fire makes total sense. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. I thought about Wag Dodge being asked, Well, did you warn all the crew? And him looking out like, Have y'all ever been out of the city limits? Do you even know what sawdust is? There was no warning. No, nobody needs to be warned when you look at it square in the face. Every mouth may be stopped when we consider the law and we really examine it up up close and we consider what it is. We have no argument. We have no other plea. We have no case relative to the law. It says the whole world may be held accountable to God via the law. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Nobody's making the ridge line. Period. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law sheds light on sin and no human being is justified. No, not one. No one survives this devouring fire of the law. Look across the page at chapter 4 verse 15. Paul says, for the law brings wrath. What an underdeveloped reality for many contemporary Christians. Wrath. The law brings wrath. We've seen pictures of it in considering the Exodus as a church. It's been some time. 
But here's just a few snippets. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. If a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. It is all over our Bibles. It is a reality that we have got to reckon with. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but it's not kept it in and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. Man, this law is a devouring fire. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. If we really consider the law and we really look at it, we say, man, it is a consuming, devouring fire, and we are Doomed. We've seen pictures of it. If we can handle our Old Testament as more than a collection of veggie tale stories, if we can look for the, the character of our God, we realize that God is indeed a devouring fire, a consuming fire, as it says in Hebrews, and we realize that the law is wrath. We see it in Achan's story. Achan, along with the nation of Israel, was told, Don't take any of the devoted things when you go into the promised land. And in Jericho, Achan says, Mmm, that silver looks good. I think I'll keep some for myself. So he digs a hole in his tent and he buries it in the floor of his tent. And as a consequence, he doesn't get a slap on the hand, he doesn't get thrown in jail. The nation of Israel, at God's direction, is taken outside of the living area and stoned with him, his wife, his kids, even his livestock are stoned. Anybody ever stolen anything? I was four years old the first time I stole something. I stole a yo-yo that says, Jesus loves me, from the Baptist bookstore. <laughs> Is anybody not guilty? Anybody? I look at Achan and I'm like, man, that's me. But for Christ, I'm Achan. We see the law and it's wrath. We see it in Korah. Korah led a rebellion against God's leadership. And Korah and Moses are out on the plain. And it's like showdown at the OK Corral. And you hear the whistling. <whistles> Tumbleweed comes rolling by. And there's no shootout. The earth swallows Korah and his family and those other families that were with him. And we see the law is a devouring fire. Anybody ever bucked God's leadership? 
Anybody? We saw it in Uzzah. You may know the story of Uzzah. They're bringing the ark to Jerusalem and the cart or the oxen stumbles and the cart kind of tips and Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark and he just assumes that his hand is cleaner than the ground. He touches the ark and he drops stone cold dead. Anybody ever thought they're doing God a favor? And come to find out that God's not served by human hands as if he needed anything? We saw it in Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who go freestyle with worship. God gives them a specific plan for how sacrifices are to be made. And they offer what's called strange fire. We don't have any other description. Strange fire. They went freestyle. And you know what happened to them? They became the sacrifice. They ignited by the devouring fire. And that is the wrath of God. We have got to come in contact with those gruesome glimpses of death because the law brings wrath. It's a devouring fire like what's taking place in Man Gulch. We've got to have that in the backdrop. Romans chapter 3.23 gives us even worse news that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's crossways with this white-hot, wrathful God. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of that sin is death. And that death is not just kaput, you die, but eternal death. It's described in Mark chapter 9 as an unquenchable fire. I made pancakes Saturday morning and actually touched the griddle while it was still hot. And I was like, ah! And I was smarting for a while. And then I thought, that's quenchable though. I don't even feel it now. That was yesterday. We're talking about an unquenchable fire. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. The guy that led the crew in Man Gulch was Wag Dodge. Wag Dodge did something that the other guys couldn't figure out. He took a match and he burned the ground where he's standing. This wall, 300-foot wall of fire is advancing up the gulch at him. The other guys are running for the ridge you know, hightailing it. And Wag is sitting there making a, his own little campfire. And what he was actually doing is he was, doing, he was making what's called an escape fire. He burned the ground in front of him, and just as it goes out, he laid down in it. And he robbed this wall of fire of its fuel. And he survived. He had an escape, and the good news for us is that we have an escape from this white hot wrath of God and that escape is the person and work of Jesus Christ look at Romans chapter 7 verse 4 likewise my brothers you also have died to the law it's been robbed of its fuel you have died to the law through the body of Christ this death has no sting anymore. Anybody ever seen a, 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 a dirt dauber? It looks like a wasp. And you see it flying at you, and it's like, it's got like landing gear. 
These things are huge. I'm about to die. But it's just a dirt dauber, and they don't sting. It's like a carpenter bee. They don't sting. We have an escape, so that thing that's so scary, that wall of fire, is no fire for us. He cleared the ridge for us. It says, you've died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. That's the good news. Galatians, don't turn there. Just listen to this passage from Galatians. I want you to to stay in Romans. Galatians chapter 3 says this. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He cleared the ridge for us. And in fact, really, if we want to take in the imagery right, he took the fire for us. He was burned up in our stead. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says this, the law came in to increase the trespass. Hear that wall of fire getting higher and hotter. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We have an escape. We have an escape fire in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10 verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ's work transformed the glory and devouring flame of the law into the glory of grace by fulfilling the law and putting it to death for us. He did that the next day on the cross. His John 17 petition that he requests for glory, was answered. And the glory of the law on Mount Sinai, that devouring fire sort of glory, is fulfilled with the glory of grace on Golgotha. Man, grace abounds all the more, right? He cleared the ridge. He took the fire. Take whatever image you want to take. He took the flame out of man gulch for us. He is our escape fire. He earned it the next day. The third thing and briefer thing is Exodus chapter 33. I'll tell you briefer because I want you to hang in there. Briefer is probably not a word, but we'll, we'll, give it a, we'll give it use this morning. Exodus chapter 33, the, fir- the third glimpse of glory. Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses says, Hey, God... Please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. He does that very thing down the page in chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. He's revealing who he is with this explanation And I want you to pay close attention to this, what I'm going to call a divine conundrum. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
I love him so far, man. That's awesome. All those things are greatness, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's where I've spent most of my Christian journey right there, knowing that about God. But he's not finished. He's still passing. And he's still talking. And he says this. But. But who will by no means clear the guilty. And then I swallow hard and I go, but I took that yo-yo. <laughs> it seems harmless. But if you fail in one part of the law, you failed in all of it. Oh, but he's a devouring fire. Yeah, that's right. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the devouring fire of the iniquity on the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I'm looking at that explanation without the cross in view, and I'm scratching my head. I'm going, whoa. He would have to be sort of capricious to be both of those things. He would have to be sort of like Sybil. When I was a kid, there was this TV series on this lady, this girl that had multiple personalities. Her name was Sybil. And I remember just being, I didn't watch it. My parents didn't let me watch it. But I saw the commercials, which, you know, little snippets of it. I don't know how many personalities she had, but God would have to have multiple personalities to do all that. How is he going to be merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty? <laughs> How's he going to apply the first part, given that no one's righteous, no, not one? How's he going to apply the first part, knowing that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God? That is a divine conundrum. And he says, my glory is going to be revealed. His glory is revealed in the divine conundrum because the glory is actually fulfilled and completed in the way that conundrum is explained is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus took the blow of the second half so that we can live in the first half. Do you get that? You see how Christ-centric the solution to that is? For 1,500 years, the Jews should have been scratching their heads saying, I know that's his name, but I don't know how that works. And then they see Jesus, and they see him down on the cross, and they say, now I get it. Now I get how he can both be merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and yet by no means clear the guilty. Now I get it, because he is those things in Christ and the cross. He is merciful in the cross. He is gracious in Christ. He is slow to anger in the work of the cross. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness through the application of the cross and what it achieved. He's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin by those who are living on and in and within the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's how he's that. And the second half of that is that devouring fire that still is. God is still a consuming fire. Do you know that? How can he be both love and a consuming fire? Jesus. You get it? How can he be all that without being capricious and multiple personalities? Because of Jesus. That's how. Jesus, through the work of propitiation takes what we're due 
And as we approach the throne now boldly, it's not a devouring fire for us anymore. Instead, it's a loving embrace because of what Christ did. That's good news. That's the shock and scandal of the gospel. (laughs) No one deserves that. No one. Now, we've developed the niche, and now I'm going to scratch it. Remember the question at the beginning of the sermon was, how are we glorified? I haven't answered that question yet, but we've done it. Let me show you something. This passage I just shared where this divine conundrum is is shared as God passes by and reveals himself to Moses. In verse 8, it says, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Across the page, it says this about Moses. It says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, As he came down from the mountain, Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. What happened to Moses there is Moses was glorified. God was glorified in Moses. Moses didn't go up there and do some sort of special work. What did he do? He went up there and enjoyed God. He went up there and enjoyed the glory of God, and he was glorified through it. It's sort of like being electrified. I was trying to think, how does that work? If I have no glory, yet God is going to glorify me, he's passing something to me I don't have. It's sort of like electrifying something. Taking this voltage and sticking it to something, and now it's got something that it didn't have. That's what happened to Moses when he enjoyed the glory of God. He's glorified. God is glorified in him, so much so that he had to wear a veil when he's hanging out with the Israelites. He's too shiny. He's got to cover it. Don't look at Moses. He's shiny. It wasn't an inherent glory. He was electrified. He was glorified through enjoying God. Now, here's the final scratch. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And let me tell you, if you hung in here this far... Don't disengage right now at the end of the message because this is the goods right here. The goods. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's what it says. It says, and we all... Well, I want to I hear the pages stop because I want to make sure everybody sees it. You've earned it. See it. And we all... He's writing to a church... So he's right to believers. And we all with unveiled face, skip that next phrase, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You want to know how? Look back at the little place I left out. Beholding the glory of the Lord. You want to know how you're glorified? You want me to scratch that itch? You want to know how you're glorified? You, if, if you just enjoyed what we saw over the, in, the, in the Exodus, you just were. You want to know how you're glorified, how God's glorified in you? He just did. I could have explained to you how God's glorified in you, or we could actually do it, and that's what we did. We just did it. 
when we went back to the Exodus and we see God glorified in this shadow, and then we see it come to complete fulfillment in the substance of what Christ has done, and your heart sings, God was glorified in you. And you were transformed from one degree of glory to the next by beholding the glory of God. We behold his glory and are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. How has Christ glorified in us? He just was. Dads, single moms, when you sit with your family over Thursday night meal and you talk about the greatness of God, God's glorified in y'all. You're a fulfillment of what he prayed here in John 17. Do you see that? When these amazing realities invade a Saturday morning, rolling around on the floor, wrestling with each other, and you stop and you talk about something of substance, glory happens. God is glorified in you. We become the fulfillment of this prayer prayed 2,000 years ago when we behold his glory. That's cool. Let's pray. Lord, we beheld your glory this morning. We beheld your glory at work in the nation of Israel in the Exodus, and we beheld your glory completely fulfilled and displayed in the finished work of the cross. Lord, we beheld it and we enjoyed it. Lord, we enjoyed your power on display. We enjoyed that the law and the wrath of the law is quenched through the cross. We enjoyed that this conundrum of a name how you could be both wrath and love is explained in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the person of Christ. Lord, we love Jesus more as a result of beholding your glory. Thank you for these sweet, sweet pictures and realities that help us understand and enjoy you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, we're going to have the Lord's Supper, and I have good news for you. I snuck in another sermon point into the Lord's Supper. I just couldn't cut it. It would be like cutting one of the kids out of our lives or something. It was just too great. But the beauty is it has everything to do with the supper we're about to take. So it's appropriate. Another glimpse of glory. Just listen to this from Exodus chapter 16. The Israelites set out from Elam. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, watch, grumbled. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, hear pouty voice. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots 
and ate bread to the full. For you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, we all know what he should have said. But the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, a grumbling, undeserving lot. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they, will bring, what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. The glory of God being revealed in the provision of bread to a bunch of grumblers. These guys are two months out of Egypt, two months out of slavery. Hear it. Two months out of back-breaking, brick-making. And they're grumbling. They would rather have full bellies and die slaves then live free and dependent with God. <laughs> Crazy. And God says, we all know what he should say, but he says, in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he's heard your grumbling against the Lord. What a scandal. And here's what it has to do with Christ. Here's the craziness of this whole gospel story. In John chapter 6, verse 32, says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. I know you're thinking manna, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He's the bread of life. He came down from heaven. That was shadow. He is substance. The glory of provision in the person of Christ. And not only that, the broken body of Christ. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Lord, we are so thankful for this weekly reminder of a broken body. So thankful that we can share this meal together. We celebrate it. We marvel at the invitation to the table. Lord, we continue to worship you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to this uh, child dedication, um, I want to briefly explain what this is and uh, what we're saying as a people here at Cross Point what we're saying to these families that you're going to see up here in just a minute, and then what they are saying. And in uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6, um, God speaks to the people corporately, 
And is he speaking to the individuals? Sure. He's speaking to them individually and corporately. Speaking to Israel, my people, hear these things. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. How do they get there? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You will bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What we are saying, Crosspoint members, to these families, to these young children that you're going to see in a minute, is we are recognizing that they are among us. We're just, we're recognizing your child is among us, and we will be diligent to teach them. And, um, you know, ours, I have a young one that's going to be in here, and I think I can speak for all these families to say, we want you to teach them diligently. Walk with us. Help us teach them diligently. Um, I won't speak for everybody, but help us change their diaper. You know, help us with everything. There is a reality here. Spiritually, we are praying that God would convert their heart and they would cry out to him and believe in Jesus. That's what we're praying for. But we're also praying this morning that you will help us in this pre-conversion discipleship of these kids. Pre-conversion discipling of them. That's what this morning is. So, cross point, as you see these faces in this video, know what you're saying and know what these families are saying. Right here, coming down the center aisle right here is um, Brian and Lauren Hudgens with Aiden. And, um, yeah, there's Avery with them. And then uh, Jake and Steph are following with uh, Joseph Matthias right here. And Ava, Luke, and Titus aren't up here right now, but... Um, Faith Rodden right here with uh, Ken and Don, Bailey and Jake, your brother and sister. And then uh, Ruby is down there with Christy, and that's mine, and Hank and Lily. And then uh, Lila is down here on the end with uh, the Hamiltons, Aaron and Stephanie, Ion, and uh, Lord willing, baby Hamilton on the way. So uh, we've got for each of these families some resources, a baby dedication certificate for you all and uh, for you all to take with you. And um, I'm going to give these to you and then we're going to pray. If the elders, other elders would come by here and come up here and we'll, we'll pray for them as we uh, hand these out. Father, we are um, covered up in kids around here. And um, we know that that's by your design and that you are the author of life. And that you have a plan and a purpose. And we recognize today that these, this bunch of kids and bunch more on the way are around us. We also want to admit how difficult it is. And that we need you. We need your church. And we're thankful for the design that you speak to us as a people. Especially when we have all these kids. It is beautiful to see and difficult at the same time. And God, I pray for each one of these parents that you would encourage them, give them rest and peace, and remind them that, number one, they're not alone. They're in the church. They're in your bride. And number two, that this is your design. This is frontline evangelism to spread your gospel and to raise up disciples.
And we trust you, Jesus, this morning. And I pray that these parents and these families in this church would trust you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.